Let me read just 12 Bloomberg headlines, starting from the latest one, from just the past two weeks. Wildfire forces evacuation of a New Mexico hospital. Nobody knows how much methane is leaking. Miami declares heat season as temperatures rise. India's scorching heat is new blow to global wheat supply. Red tape hinders Europe's push to replace Russian gas. Wall Street semantics skew fossil fuel financing votes. Oil boom turns Texas into earthquake capital. I don't know if you're getting the picture or not. There's only four more to go. But the next one, I'm going to stop on for a while. So the next headline says, Global warming sparks India's heat waves. I don't know if you're aware or aren't, but India and Pakistan have been in the midst of a historic heat wave. Right now, there is still one billion people sweltering. Heat-related illnesses galore. Terrible air quality in multiple areas of the country. Little or no rain. Reduced crop yields. Faster melting snow. 300 large wildfires. That's all within India and because of its historic heat wave. And it's not just historic, it's actually incredible. India's had basically no spring, or the shortest spring ever, pick one. They have up to 90% rainfall deficiency in parts of the country. They've had some of the areas at over 45 degrees centigrade for over two months. Their wheat harvest has been impacted, and they're the world's second largest wheat producer. And in short, in India, climate change is making their heat waves harsher and more frequent. That's the heat dome effect weaponized by climate change. And guess what? Returning soon, maybe next year, the year after, except it's going to come back worse. So that was just headline eight, global warming sparks India's heat waves. Let me give you four more. World losing 10 soccer fields of forest a minute. Some coastal cities sinking faster than seas rise. World lacks time, not minerals. War turbocharges world's addiction to coal. So all of these were just Bloomberg headlines from the last two weeks, painting quite the apocalyptic picture, aren't they? There's also the IPCC report that was published in April, distilling thousands of climate science papers to basically say we're screwed unless emissions start declining now. So that's all for context. In the middle of all this climate drama, I read an email asking me if I wanted to speak to consultants McKinsey 
who are apparently working with the high-level climate champions on how to create what they call, McKinsey, a step change in funding for developing countries' energy transition. So how to send a lot more money to developing countries. High-level climate champions, by the way, are intended to connect the work of governments with what everybody else is doing, including cities, region, businesses, and investors. And there's usually two of them, two high-level champions, two individuals that are appointed between and across COPs, the annual climate talks. So let me tell you more about that McKinsey work because it really got me angry. And I certainly hope McKinsey isn't getting paid a penny for any of that work. Welcome to episode 61 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Asad Razouk. I am so happy you're here. Thank you. Let's talk some more about that McKinsey work. They're putting together a report called A Shared Vision for the Green Financial Architecture, the road to Sharm el-Sheikh, which is where the next annual climate talks are going to take place after those of Glasgow in 2021. So, according to McKinsey, despite a myriad of climate finance pledges and initiatives, flows of climate finance are insufficient. Yes, we know that, but fine. And so McKinsey is trying to clear the fog by doing a robust literature review and what they call inclusive interviews. Why? They want to bring clarity to the estimated climate finance needs of developing countries. Then they want to provide a simplified view of the ecosystem. And finally, they want to identify a few areas that could benefit from the high-level champions convening power and visibility up to the Sharm el-Sheikh climate talks and create a step change in catalyzing green finance. Sounds wonderful, doesn't it? So then, apparently, McKinsey interviewed over 50 stakeholders and reviewed 40 publications. They also reviewed 10 key papers, they say, all of which show that there's a huge investment gap in climate finance. And that's not a surprise. We already know that. Then they've got a few slides I didn't even understand. They use slide titles like Climate Finance Architecture Needs to Change for low- and middle-income countries to benefit from net-zero productivity gains, whatever that means. But I saved the best for last. McKinsey then comes up with a busy slide called Barriers to Investment Flows Can Affect Stakeholders a Number of Times Across the Investment Decision Flow. Okay, that's not very clear, but I think what it means is that McKinsey figured out what the barriers were that need to be surmounted to turbocharge climate funding and therefore accelerate the energy transition. 
So according to them, these barriers are divided into three, enabling environment, capability and capacity, and risk. And then they've got stuff like lack of actionable climate investment plans. So that, according to them, is a barrier. Another one is lack of regulatory framework or high transaction costs or unattractive local investment climate or my favorite, lack of high quality data. So that's when data on risk is not available or poor quality in a certain country. They've got more of these apparent barriers to investment flows. There's another six. They include lack of investor knowledge. Thank you, McKinsey's, who apparently investors don't know what they're doing. But of course, McKinsey does. Lack of capability and expertise to develop projects and deploy capital. I mean, okay, that's pretty condescending, but that's what they wrote. Terms and processes of development finance institutions are inefficient. So this is where we blame others. Or inadequate credit risk framework over-indexed on country risk, whatever that means. And finally, they've got inadequate insurance framework and nascent technologies bearing high risk. So according to them, everything I just read to you are the barriers to investment flows, which can affect stakeholders and therefore are slowing down the energy transition in developing countries. Now, aside from the fact that this is frankly gibberish and unclear and hardly understandable, McKinsey, conveniently, is going to distract whoever is reading this report into actually taking what they write seriously and therefore forget the elephants, plural, in the room, which McKinsey conveniently does not mention. Conveniently for whom? Conveniently for McKinsey, I assume. One of these elephants in the room is fossil fuel subsidies. Now, it's unconscionable that somebody would prepare a report about why climate funding is lacking across the world and in developing countries and forgets to mention that we are subsidizing fossil fuels, according to the IMF, at the rate of $11 million a minute or $6 trillion trillion a year, as if that had no impact in the allocation of capital. And, you know, frankly, when I saw that that particular elephant in the room was missing from all these words that they're writing, I thought that I would be wasting my time talking to them. I mean, we're talking about one of the world's top consultancy firms, allegedly, putting together a report, which, as I said before, I hope they're not getting paid for, to the high-level climate champions and therefore to, behind them, governments and cities and businesses, that is missing the essence of what's going on. Because, of course, the other thing that's going on is 
that we have incredible oil and gas vested interests in almost every country that are slowing down the energy transition every step of the way. And so I don't understand the point of continuing to write reports when it is abundantly clear that we are in a climate crisis and that we need to act, not write more reports, let alone waste the time of 50 stakeholders and however many people McKinsey ends up interviewing to basically write platitudes. Now that really makes me angry. The amount of time that is being wasted globally on writing reports about the energy transition and about climate action is absolutely humongous and dwarfs by far the amount of time that the very same people are spending actually doing something. That has to stop. It really has to stop. Let me give you an example from the real world of what is actually going on while McKinsey is wasting my time and everybody else's with that particular report and undoubtedly many others. Just in the past month or so, first, Germany released 3 billion euros to buy floating liquefied natural gas import terminals. So floating LNG terminals. It's basically a super tanker that's rejigged to regasify liquid gas. So Germany released 3 billion euros to buy floating LNG terminals. And their narrative is, of course, that they must reduce dependency on Russian energy imports. Germany imports an average of 55% of its gas from Russia via pipelines. And so to avoid the pipelines, we need to ship that gas from Australia, Qatar, the US, or elsewhere. To ship it, you have to liquefy the gas so that you can ship it efficiently. And so to liquefy it, you cool it down to negative 160 degrees Celsius, then you compress it into liquid form. And by doing that, you've reduced its volume by 600 times. So then you put it on a ship and you transport it, say from Australia or Qatar or the US to Germany. And once it reaches Germany, you need to regasify that liquid. And you do that in an LNG terminal. But because LNG terminals might take five years to build, you can short-circuit the process by buying or renting floating LNG terminals. So that's what the Germans are doing. They get these big tankers to regasify the liquid on arrival in order for them to be able to distribute it into the country. And it's not just Germany. France and Italy are also both investing in floating LNG terminals. So that's right now. Right now also, Greece just announced a new LNG facility that they want to build off a northern Greek port called Alexandropoulos. Why? Because if Greece had that facility there, the idea is that 
Ships can then come to Greece, avoid the Russian pipelines, and create a new gas route for Europe. And over in the U.S., salivating two U.S. LNG projects, additional to everything else, took major steps to launch. And these cost billions of dollars. So while McKinsey is wasting our time with that particular report, literally tens of billions of dollars in the last month or two have been diverted into investing in more fossil fuels when the International Energy Agency and the IPCC have both said that we cannot afford any more new fossil fuels and that we have to literally bend the emission curve this year or next year. Otherwise, we're all going to fry. And so that's the context for that McKinsey report when I received it and why I reacted the way that I did. These types of facts bring a lot of frustration to people around the world. I don't think I'm on my own. The state of climate action is appalling. And people feel helpless to change anything. I mean, what am I supposed to do against floating LNG terminals? It's an impossible challenge. And so on climate action, people feel helpless. They may take direct climate action by protesting, for example, but then after that protest is over, their daily lives take over and they get distracted eating and drinking and living and caring and have no tangible result from that action that they've taken, the protest. And so, more often than not, in what I see around me, they feel helpless and they then give up. That's the current environment we live in. Appalling climate action, huge fossil fuel interests that jump at every chance to stop the energy transition or slow it down, and to increase the risk that the climate emergency is going to go completely out of control. And so that's why what is actually needed is, instead of feeling helpless, is to take direct citizen action. Peaceful protests are an excellent venue for that, but they're not enough. We need to move a wall of money directly from the people of the world into actions that stop emissions rising. And everyone should be thinking and working on tools to take direct citizen climate action at scale. I certainly am, as you'll hear in subsequent episodes of this podcast, just as soon as I have something credible that I can share. Thank you so much for listening to this episode 61 of the Angry Clean Energy Guy with me, Asad Razouk.
Have a great couple of weeks.